welcome back to Not Another Science Podcast. I'm Emily. I'm the other Emily. And this week we had an insightful chat with Dr John Reynolds-Wright, who is both a clinical research fellow at the Centre for Reproductive Health at the University of Edinburgh, as well as a medical doctor at the Chalmers Centre, NHS Lothian. John's research themes include abortion care and contraceptives used following medical abortions. But in this episode, we chat about a male contraceptive gel currently under review in clinical trials. We discuss how exactly this gel works as a method of contraception, the willingness of both partners to try out this new method of pregnancy prevention, and why progress in male contraceptives has been lacking in the past. Before we begin, this podcast is sponsored by GrinerBio One, who supply laboratory, diagnostic and medical products to research institutes, higher education, the NHS and others across the UK. You can find out more about their products at www.gbo.com. Hi, my name is John Reynolds Wright. I am a clinical lecturer in sexual and reproductive health at the University of Edinburgh MRC Centre for Reproductive Health and also um, the Chalmers Centre for Sexual Health um, in NHS Lothian. I'm a medical doctor there as well as a researcher at the University of Edinburgh. And so what is your your research background and how did you end up interested in uh, male contraceptive research and reproductive health in general? So I suppose the question about reproductive health in general is that um, it's part of my clinical work. So my NHS healthcare job title is that I'm a specialist uh, registrar in sexual and reproductive health. Um, So that clinical job that I do involves me working with um, contraception, providing that for all sorts of people, um, abortion care, menopause, vasectomy, uh, scanning, all sorts of different aspects of sexual and reproductive health. And for a long time, I've been interested in and passionate about um, research and how that can advance our clinical care that we provide. And so um, all the way through medical school and then afterwards, I've been involved with the research in lots of different ways. And when I became a registrar in Edinburgh um, at the Chalmers Centre, I was looking for the opportunity to do further research, maybe pursue a PhD. And Professor Cameron, Professor Sharon Cameron, who works there, she um, got me linked in with some projects she was working on and also connected me to Professor Richard Anderson, um, who leads on the male contraception trial in Edinburgh. And so during my research fellowship, when I did my PhD, I was working on the male contraception trial. Um, as kind of the trial doctor um, and also um, doing all sorts of other projects as well at the Chalmers Centre and as time has gone on and I've kind of progressed through completing my PhD and moved on to kind of a further kind of postdoctoral post I have then started taking on more of a responsibility within the male contraception trial as well as other other things that I'm doing. That's a lot. yeah that's so interesting and um, i feel like male contraceptives have always been well at least in my own experience always been talked about but nothing ever has surfaced so if you like i can just give a bit of background as to why it's taken so long and why yes male contraception has taken so long to get to development yeah that would be really interesting um so male contraception development started in kind of the late 60s more or less similar time as the development of female contraceptives um, and it's happened in lots of kind of fits and starts over these sort of the last five six decades there's not been kind of an 
uninterrupted program of research all over this time. It's been done by certain groups at some points and other groups at others. And, you know, there's been funding cuts and global crises and all these kind of things that have interrupted progress as time's gone on. Um, and also there's been a big lack of industry involvement. The pharmaceutical industry has interestingly not shown any interest in, um, in taking up the development of male contraceptives. So it's been sort of left to the kind of public sector to advance that. So in the 1960s, the WHO formed the Human Reproduction Programme, um, and within the Human Reproduction Programme, there was the Male Contraceptive Development Task Force, and that did three things. The first thing was it looked into Gossipol, which was a non-hormonal um, contraceptive um, derived from cotton, um, and there were quite a few different studies in that because it looked really promising, but then it was eventually abandoned due to um, concerns over toxicity um, and also um, inadequate reversibility. Um, and so that kind of was shuttered at that point. And I wonder, I do wonder whether or not with new technologies that we have, we might be able to revisit Gossipol at some point in the future and modify the molecules in some way so that it is less toxic and is maybe more reversible. But that's kind of, um, you know, a pipe dream at the moment, I think. The second area of development for the male contraception for the male contraception task force is actually the development of no scalpel vasectomy, which is the current main method of vasectomy used worldwide. Um, and it's a type of vasectomy I practice myself. Um, and it's a real major success of the, the male contraceptive development task force that kind of gets overlooked a little bit because um, people don't think of it necessarily in the same way as a novel male contraceptive, but that was one of the big outputs that they had. And it is a very, very effective form of contraception, but it is unfortunately permanent. Um, so it doesn't see people who want to have a reversibility of their contraception method. So then the third area of development was creating novel compounds or hormonal compounds rather to create a novel male contraception method. And that's been a combination of testosterone, um, different formulations of testosterone, and also combining those progestogens to create a, um, a male contraceptive that was reversible. And part of the problem and part of what's taken so long is that um, we've needed to have technological developments to allow that. So you can't have oral contraception um, using testosterone as a basis because testosterone breaks down too quickly. So if you were to use testosterone as a tablet, you need to dose about six times a day to get an adequate contraceptive dose, which is not realistic and is not feasible. And we wouldn't expect female users of contraception to do something that was six times a day. Um, so we need to develop other routes, so injections, implants, um, gels, all of those things took time to develop um, and the studies themselves needed to work out what level of sperm count we needed to have good contraceptive protection. So again, over several iterations of studies, that's been refined to being what we use in our current study, which is a sperm count of less than 1 million per milliliter um, to be able to give us a 99% contraceptive protection rate so that's and that's all been done firstly by the the human reproduction program and then by lots of other different bodies all over the last kind of multiple decades really um so the current study is the same principle of a progestogen and a androgen together so we use um, a testosterone gel mixed with um progesterone acetate or nesterone which is a synthetic progestogen and it's quite potent and it's quite selective and is used in female contraceptives as well as, as, a, as a male contraceptive. And broadly speaking, the progesterone acetate, the, the progestogen, suppresses the uh, hypothyroid pituitary gonadal axis and prevents sperm production. But in shutting that down, it also 
prevent testosterone production. And so we need to then add testosterone back into the system so that the users don't experience symptoms of hypogonadism. So low energy, low mood, low sex drive, because that again is not really a very good selling point for a contraceptive method. Um, so that's how it works. It's formulated into a single gel so the participants put it onto their skin, on their shoulders one pump onto each shoulder and rub it in um, and they do that once a day. And as part of the current study, what we're doing is monitoring people to see how quickly they suppress and how consistently they suppress down to an undetectable level or a less than one million per milliliter for their sperm count. And then once they get to that point, they use just the gel on its own as their only contraceptive method as a couple um, for a one year period. And then at the end of that one year period, we count how many pregnancies there have been as well as a bunch of other things, including safety parameters and biological parameters for the participants that are using it. And then they stop the gel, and then we monitor their sperm count as it returns back up to normal. So when you say count how many pregnancies they've there's been, do you have to sort of... I don't know how to say this. <laughs> do you have to have, like, a, in the ter- sort of terms and conditions of the trial for the, the people that are in the trial, do you sort of have to say, by the way this we're testing to see if this works so if you get pregnant then yeah so essentially that's what people consent to so it's an efficacy study and we're very upfront with that the primary outcome is is for us to determine efficacy of the method um and while we have indications from previous studies including of the earlier formulations of the gel that it is likely to be highly effective we can't give people a, a number that's the whole point of this study is to give a number so it it asks for quite a certain type of person, I suppose, who's kind of um, willing to accept some risk. Um, and it's a couple, we need to recruit couples because um, we're giving the contraception mm. to the male partner, but we need to see if pregnancies occur in the female partner in that heterosexual coupling. Um, so again, it needs to be couples who are committed to each other, who are having sex on a regular basis, um, and who are willing to kind of accept the small but unquantifiable at present risk of, of a pregnancy. And you know, we, you can do, if, if they became pregnant, they could do whatever they'd normally do if they were pregnant. So if they wanted to continue the pregnancy, they can do that. If they wanted to terminate the pregnancy, they could do that as well. Um, we just kind of ask some of them and make it clear that whatever they choose to do, we just need to know what they choose to do. No, yeah, that's it. going into a medical trial, I guess you have to be of that mindset that you're not entirely sure what will happen at the end of it. Yeah, exactly. Um, but you also mentioned that pharmaceutical companies haven't, been that interested in developing a male hormonal contraceptive? Do you, do you know why? Or is it to do with they don't think there'll be a big market for it? Or It's hard to say. I mean, I would be speculating completely. Um, I think that there is perhaps a perception of it being a competing market, maybe. I think also the reality is, is that male contraceptive trials are all clinical trials, and particularly contraceptive trials are expensive and incur risk. Because what happens if you as a drug company do a trial and then you end up with a bunch of people fall pregnant and then they all have anomalies or that kind of thing. So I think there is some perceived risk around it, perhaps. Um, And also, I think that one of the things that people get in terms of return on investment is that the whole principle around contraception, it should be equitable, it should be affordable, it should be inexpensive for the user so that people can actually access it and use it. So if you've got a choice as a drug company between developing a expensive fancy cancer drug that you can charge lots of money for versus something that's going to take a lot of money to develop and then you're only going to get a small return on that investment i can understand again financially how that may or may not be um, attractive 
to a company that is driven by profit generation. Um, and I think alongside all of that, that, I think even comparing it to female contraceptive methods, a lot of the female contraceptives and the new ones that come out, they're actually almost kind of rehashing of older methods. So, so you get kind of some of the approvals are already granted, I suppose, in terms of we know female pills work in X, Y, Z way. So actually coming up with a slightly new formulation incurs lower risk and lower financial cost to the development. Whereas for a male method, we're starting from scratch and it's, it's kind of forging a new path with it, really, for all the kind of regulatory costs that go along with it. And we've got two people involved always, whereas the female contraceptive trial, you're just recruiting a female person to take part in the study. Um, you've got to recruit a male person and then their committed couple uh, to join you in this study. So there's a lot more moving parts, it becomes more complicated. So, so yeah, so I think there's also the complexity around um, male contraceptive trials that are perhaps slightly more complex than female contraceptive studies. And so that then might have um, again, implications for pharmaceutical companies being willing and interested to take part in it. But again, we're talking about money always as the motivator for these things. And actually, if we had a pharmaceutical industry that was managed and incentivized in a different way, perhaps they would be able to get involved and develop it more quickly. Yeah, that's, I hadn't thought of it as a, as a, like, the clinical trials become like twice as big, basically. Exactly. To be fair to industry, um, and the pharmaceutical industry around their interest in another male contraceptive. I think around the 2000s, there was a landmark study between um, Shearing and Organon, which were two co different companies that actually collaborated on developing a kind of male implant. Mm. And that was essentially, I think in the way that they formulated it in that early study, it was kind of like several pellets of testosterone implant, and then also uh, several uh, progestogen-based female contraceptive implants given together, um, and that showed real good suppression and real good uh, effectiveness um, for that method, and that would have been a long-lasting method of, of contraception, a long-lasting reversal method of contraception, so likely to, again to be highly effective. But unfortunately, both of those companies got bought out by larger pharmaceutical companies who had different priorities and wanted to go in different directions and so they shuttered that research program between them. That's a shame. That is a shame. <laughs> oh, no. While it is a downside, I think it does give the possibility and it does almost lay a template out for the possibility for pharmaceutical companies to engage in this research in kind of inventive and unusual ways to develop these drugs. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's like it's almost been done before. Yeah. So why can't it happen again? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. And I guess coming from that as well, since it's, you're saying it's the public sector now, mm -hmm. it's like there is, de do you think there is a demand for a male hormonal contraceptive and like a big enough demand for it to be like, I don't, not profitable, I guess profitable, yeah. Or like yeah. viable as a method. Yeah. Yeah, viable. I think that there is. Um, we did a systematic review of this here with Professor Anderson, um, looking at the evidence so far on acceptability, willingness to use, both from people who had participated in kind of experimental drug trials and also people who were just asked like hypothetically would you be interested in a, in a male contraceptive method and the studies asking men, the studies asking women, would they trust their partners and essentially across all of them and the studies have been going on the late sort of 60s, early 70s, um, lots of different geographical locations, essentially there's always a wedge of people that are interested and that is 
usually between at least kind of 30%, if not to 80% of the people involved in whichever study or survey or um, kind of qualitative study it's been. So I think there is going to be a substantial proportion of people who would be interested and motivated to participate and uh, to use it as a method when it comes to market. But really, we can't know how it is. It's a new technology that we don't really have before. And I sometimes compare it to like the iPhone or something like that. We don't know how the iPhone was going to reshape the way society worked until we had it. And actually, this is a new piece of technology that might transform how we view society and we review reproductive equality and things like that. The flip side of that is as well, I to take almost kind of the opposite tack, is I would say that there's lots of people that rely on male-initiated methods already. Lots of couples rely on condoms. A surprising number of couples rely on withdrawal methods um, for their contraceptives. And lots of people rely on vasectomy. So again, those are all male-initiated methods that all require a bit of trust and a bit of um, uh, kind of shared responsibility and shared control between the, the couples in order to make them work. So again, I don't think it's outlandish, this idea. I think, again, it gets presented sometimes as being unbelievable that women would want to um, rely on a male method of contraception. Actually, I think we've got lots of evidence that they, they would. Mm, very good points. When you, you spoke earlier about how um, for a lot of trials, it's obviously all about making the method of contraception well tolerated for the patient, side effects such as you know low mood or, or low libido. Um, you mentioned before is, you know, it's not something desirable for a male contraceptive. Um, but I do know that, you know, those side effects are reported in in hormonal contraceptives that, that women take and, and acne is another one, for example. Um, so I suppose, do you think if the, the, you know, the first female hormonal contraceptives were being developed today and going through a trial today, they would pass in an equivalent clinical trial as male contraceptive trials? I think that's a really interesting question. I think it's kind of a two points to come back to, but in terms of that thing of would a female, would a brand new, if we didn't have contraception now at all, and if we were just creating the first ever pill trial, would we be able to get it through quickly and as um, effectively as we did in the past? I honestly don't know because I think comparing now to like the 1930s, 40s, 50s in terms of clinical trial ethics, I think is one aspect that's changed and evolved. I think also we have to recognise the huge amount of bureaucracy and over-regulation that affects all branches of research and science, um, a lot of which I don't think necessarily makes trials safer. Um, but certainly makes them more expensive and more complicated to carry out. So that's a really good question, and I wonder what our approach would be. I do think that the reason why we've had female contraceptives developed more urgently, and that's taken precedence in the past, is to do with the fact that women are the ones that disproportionately bear the burden of unintended pregnancy. Um, and so that has rightly been prioritised in the past. And whenever you're doing a study like this for female users of contraception you're comparing not using contraception with using contraception but also there's a third category for what happens if this person gets pregnant in terms of risks and actually we know that basically all of the risks and side effects and anything that you can imagine might happen with a female contraception method dramatically increases in the chances of that occurring during pregnancy so you've got the kind of non-pregnant and pregnant state to compare with as well. 
which is not the same as a male method of contraception. So if we think about it, uh, a female person is using their a contraceptive method to prevent a pregnancy, a medical condition occurring in themselves. Whereas when we're using a male contraceptive method, we've got somebody who's using a drug to prevent a condition occurring in somebody else. So the balance of risks and side effects and benefits and all those kind of things, I think the kind of bioethics of that become a bit more complicated and a bit less um, less easy to pass. And so you might look at studies that say, well, the side effects were this in this study, but then when you compare it to what are reported in female side effects, that seems like it's the same amount or it's only a bit less, but actually, Again, there's that additional comparison that gets made in female studies of well, what if this person then became pregnant? Um, is this actually a better option than somebody becoming pregnant? Um, that being said, and I'm being a bit circumspect, is that I think that as time has moved on, um, I think it's very clear that people conceptualize pregnancy as things that happen to both persons, people in a couple. So I think men conceptualize pregnancy as happening to them. It's not just something that happens to their partner, it's got nothing to do with them. So again, men are willing and interested in taking on, um, you know, that contraceptive burden and risks that might go alongside that as part of their relationship with their partner, as part of their having a family to take care of, um, and they're able to make those decisions for themselves. Um, right at the start when I said we need to have something that's attractive to people in terms of being able to use and not give problems with side effects of low mood and um, Low libido. When you're deficient in testosterone, you have dramatically, like as in its absence, like you don't have any libido, you don't have any erection. And again, I think one of the things I'm really careful about when we talk about male contraception is that it's not needed because female contraception is so terrible. For the most part, female contraception has lots of positive side effects and lots of the things that get reported as being a problem are not borne out in the studies and in the evidence that we have. Um, and there's also a lot of media attention to make people think contraception is bad for them. And when you look a bit closer at those people that report those and sort of say, you know, you should stop using your pill and you should start using this app instead to track your cycles, they've often got a financial incentive or some kind of incentive for that messaging. So I think it's, it is something that we need to be conscious of in terms of side effects and, and we need better methods of contraception for women as well in terms of side effect management and the more holistic picture of how that contraception affects them, as well as that being the case for, for male contraception. But I think we also need to remember that there's lots of positives in female contraception as well. And this looking for a male contraception method is not because we need to get rid of female contraception methods. There's a lot of positives that come from that. Yeah. I, yeah. I suppose making a contraceptive that completely just like takes out your sex drive is sort of defeating the point, isn't it? <laughs> it probably work because they won't be having sex, but it's not, not really like the ideal scenario. We want people to be able to have sex and enjoy it and uh, not have to worry about getting pregnant. No, I hadn't thought of it that way in that it's like with the female contraceptive, it is like you're weighing up the risk of being pregnant against the risk of taking a contraceptive as well. So it's like, it's, it's, a, it's a very different question, I guess, to whether a male takes a contraceptive or not compared to whether a female takes one. And I think it's just, it's a complicated question. And I think yes, yeah. we often try to think about it in really simple terms and communicate it in simple terms, but actually it's conceptually a little bit kind of 
it's going to be kind of more messy to get your head around and there isn't really like a clear-cut crisp answer that you can give and it's just one of those things we kind of have to kind of carry on struggling with I suppose. Yeah definitely and I guess it is like like you say it depends on like person to person as well so I guess it is very much just it's best to have as many options as possible and that includes having more methods of male contraception as well as well as female ones. Absolutely and I think that that's something that we see in the evidence for acceptability and willingness to use is um, when you look at the hypothetical studies, there's no single method that men say that they would like to use. It's not like all men want to use a gel or they all want to use a pill or they all want to use an injection. When you look at it, it's a great big spread of all the different methods that might see them. And that again translates across cultures, it translates across ages and family situations, all that kind of stuff, like it does for female contraceptive users. So, having a broad suite of options available to people I think is, is really important. Yeah definitely. I don't know if this will be the final question <laughs> but I guess it's like a nearly final question. As a best guess uh, how long do you think it'll be before there's a male hormonal contraceptive available in the UK to the public? I mean I know it's speculative. <laughs> I would say if things go absolutely according to plan I would say 2030. Really? Oh wow. Yeah. That's so I think, further away than I thought you were going to say. <laughs> well, I think I'm, I'm supposed to be, I'm maybe be a little bit pessimistic even when I say I'm going to go according to plan. But, you know, we're just, we're just concluding the phase two study now and you need to have two phase three studies to bring any uh, new drug to market um, through FDA approvals. And again, this is the current trial is led by the National Institute for Child Health and Human Development in the United States. Um, and so their first port of course make sure everything aligns with the FDA approvals um, and so you need to have two two clinical trials of, a, of the right size um, be conducted as a phase three study so that needs to happen next and it needs to all work perfectly for us to be able to do that so I think um, each of those studies might take sort of three or four years they can be concurrent and they can overlap with each other so again if we get them all going and running and they overlap with each other and then they everything goes like holding to plan and there's not issues or problems found then i think by the time it's progressed through all those different regulatory approvals i think it would be scraping 2030 if not hitting 2030 already but you know we've waited this long um what's another it's another seven, seven years, years. yeah <laughs> Get it, get it over the line. But I think, you know, we're in a really positive place. Um, this is the first we've ever gotten with a male contraceptive method, um, and we're all quite optimistic, I think, in the in the field and in the trial um, that we're going to hopefully get this one over the line. That was amazing. I mean, good luck. <laughs> yeah. I'll keep my fingers crossed. <laughs> it's really encouraging to hear from someone who sees patients as well as researches yeah. this, mm. this uh, topic that, you know, there is... A lot of interest in a male contraceptive from from who, the potential people who would use it. Totally, yeah, and I mean, I am one of the vasectomy surgeons in Edinburgh as well, and you know, our waiting list has got it's substantial, um, and is you know more than a hundred people refer themselves to it every month. Oh. So like, we've got a lot of people who are interested in vasectomy, um, including increasingly younger men, um, and actually. Sometimes we have to discuss with them, is that the right thing for them to do at this time? And um, some of them have got really, really um, kind of clear reasons why. But actually, I think for a lot of those uh, younger men, actually having a reversible method that they could start and rely on a bit better than condoms would actually be something that they'd really grab hold of. So, you know, I think 
even in, from a clinical side of things, I see that desire and that um, willingness to use a male method. No, so there's definitely demand out there. I don't know, I, I guess quite naively, I sort of imagined that there wouldn't be such a demand as a, for a female one, but I guess that is yeah. I know. <laughs> incorrect. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> but I think I suppose, I, I would say, you know, it's the way that society is changing, but actually when you look back at the studies from the 70s, Yes, because I was going to say, is it like just like society's changed so much that only now we're able to do this? But you were saying, yeah, in the 70s, there was also this demand. So, yeah, and I think when you look at um, lots of the studies, you know, the limitations of the spread of the data is that lots of them are from North America uh, or from westernized developed settings. Mm. So actually, you know, how translatable is it to different populations? But, you know, I mean, one of the oldest studies is from like 1975 in Central African Republic. And then, oh, wow. you know, that's one of the studies that re represents, I think it's about 20 to 25 percent of the male elders who were um, interviewed being interested in using a male initiated method, which, again, um, very traditional communities that were interviewed in that. And some of the larger studies do include other uh, greater kind of variation in kind of income in those countries and geographical settings so across the different continents and um, lower middle income countries as well so um you know there are factors that influence interest in it and i think that one of the things that i find kind of most interesting and most compelling because i see it in our participants as well in this study is that often they men who are motivated to support their partner if the partner's got a medical issue or has side effects or problems in pregnancy or with another female method of contraception, that really motivates the male partner to look for a method that they can use. And in the studies of looking at willingness, those are the people that influences their willingness dramatically. Other things that might influence it is, um, you know, cost, things like uh, religion, what religion they belong to, and then also religiosity, so how religious they perceive themselves to be. But that thing of wanting to care for and support a partner and take on that burden to share the burden with their partner is something that really motivates um, a lot of men and it's like I think that's believable even across time and space around the world like there are lots of people in couplings that feel like that. No it's so interesting to see that just like staying similar across time. That was a very positive conversation. Yeah it was so interesting. I really knew nothing about it before. This podcast is brought to you by the Edinburgh University Science Media Magazine, or USI for short. Keep an eye on our social media for more podcast episodes by following us on Twitter at EUSCI or on Facebook. Just search Edinburgh University Science Media. This episode was hosted by me, Emily Southworth, and Emily Oliver, and developed with our podcast manager, Katie Pickup. The podcast logo was designed by Apple Chu, and the episode art designed by Amy Perks. The intro music is an edited version of Funko Rama, and the outro music is an edited version of Funk Game Loop by Kevin McLeod. Thank you for listening, and until next time, remember to keep it science.